tonight coming together on the occasion of Wisaka Punami, the full moon night in May. It's a suitable occasion to recollect the life of the Lord Buddha. Recollect the sacrifice the Buddha made in his last life. Up to the point where he became a Buddha, and the Bodhisattva became a Buddha under the Bodhi tree in northern India. In the sacrifice he made in teaching the Dhamma for the rest of his life. Also to look at the qualities of the Bodhisattva and in the Buddha. What brought the Buddha to the point where he awakened to the Dhamma and realized the area, such a Dhamma, the Four Noble Truths, and reached liberation, freedom, the highest peace, the highest happiness. What led him to that? For many, many lifetimes the Buddha had had that wish, aspiration to pursue truth, understand the true nature of reality as it is in order to free his mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. And also to be able to teach that to others. There's a relentless pursuit of truth over many existences, learning, developing that skill in investigating, examining looking closely at the true nature of things with the aim to find peace, happiness, and looking at what takes away peace or obstructs peace from arising in a human mind. So even leaving the palace. He had that motivation in his mind, going to study with the leading spiritual masters of the age in India, still unable to fulfill that aspiration, even having been trained in 
meditation to the highest level, developing rupa jhanas and arupa jhanas to the level of nevasanya nasanya ayatana, which he would say later, the level of the mind, the refinement of the mind in eighth jhana, or the fourth arupa jhana, very close to nibbana, to the awakened state, or the deathless state, but still not the same thing, still a condition of mind that has a cause and is ultimately still impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. Even having developed that great skill to enter the form, formless jhanas at will, incline his mind to those objects, the boundless objects, infinite space, infinite consciousness, <coughs> nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception, still because of his relentless pursuit of truth and examining, looking closely at the mind and the causes of suffering, could still see the roots of suffering were there in the mind as he came out of those deep states of samadhi. Could still see the basis of attachment to this body. The mind attaches to the body the senses, the six senses, and the objects of the senses cause for craving and attachment to arise. Attachment for material world, attachment for family, so I had a wife and a child. Attachment to the bliss of samadhi or the equanimity of samadhi. Could still see these as a source of suffering. So on that final night of his enlightenment, must have been examining the way ignorance conditions, sankara, karmic formations, and on through to sense contact, vaitana, craving, attachment, power, becoming, jati, birth. Must have been contemplating that, having come out of deep samadhi, being able to see how mental defilements manifest as craving and attachment in the mind. And see that's what has to be uprooted. 
of applying wisdom, mindfulness and wisdom to look carefully, look closely at craving, the objects of craving, the nature of craving itself. See, and this is the source of suffering in our human mind, in our experience. Sensual craving, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. In short, liking and disliking, attraction and aversion of the mind, being pulled and rejected by experience. Not peaceful, not still, still subject to uh, making karma based on the experience of craving, the desire to get things, desire to get rid of things that we don't like, don't want. You must have been just contemplating the nature of craving and having probably having contemplated it previously as well to come to thoroughly understand it and recognize it in his mind the nature of craving what it is what it does to the mind as an experience and then contemplating what is not craving the end of craving or the abandoning of craving and seeing that as true peace There's that quality of constantly using the state of sustained mindfulness, the quiet, peaceful state of samadhi, to contemplate, investigate, look closely at the mind and what it does without delusion, without basing his judgment or assessment just on beliefs or theories but actually looking closely at craving as it is what it does to the mind so we're following in his footsteps as bhikkhus and training in the Dhamma Vinaya developing these skills to bring the mind to see more closely the way things are and the way suffering does arise to see what is craving actually putting the teachings that the Buddha gave us to the test and we can see in every aspect of our daily life well, craving has its opportunity to arise because it's always arising through sense contact weight and pleasure and pain pleasant, painful feeling arises, gives rise to craving, liking and disliking, and the disturbing nature of that. And then the establishment of mindfulness and knowing craving for what it is, knowing the weight enough for what it is, the sense contact for what it is, allowing it to fade away, cease from the mind without grasping at it and building on it with mental proliferation and a sense of self.
just having enough mindfulness to know craving arising and craving passing away without following it. That's an experience we can all have sometimes. It's what we call insight. We see the impermanent nature of this body and the mind, the mental states that we have, which are an expression of craving. And this must be one of the qualities that the Buddha emphasized over and over again, this ability to learn from our experience, examine our experience as it is from day to day, from moment to moment, in our meditation or in our daily life, and using the peacefulness of the monastery in the forest, the peaceful environment, people keeping sila, living with integrity and a sense of mutual respect and harmony so that we can set aside more coarse worldly distractions and problems to look more closely at this deeper problem of craving, how it arises and its effect on the mind and how to abandon it. And that's a skill, learning that skill to be able to look at our own minds, see how craving arises, see how it affects our external behavior as well, our speech, our actions. And then looking back to the root of root cause, the mental states arising based on craving. That's a skill to keep being able to look back and see that. Sometimes we're too relaxed in our practice and we let craving take over completely. And then we find suffering very quickly arising, especially in a monastery where there's a high standard of Vinaya training, personal discipline. If the more we give in to craving, well, the quickly it comes back on us. If we fall into unwholesome mental states, follow negative emotions, they come out in our speech, our actions, well quickly we can see the suffering of it, either with other people or just within ourselves. Other times, because we've had some insight into craving, maybe we try to be very, very strict, controlling. So we see we've had some glimpse of the problem, so we don't want craving coming up. We don't want to display our craving in our speech, our actions. Don't even want it in the mind. So we become too tense, too strict. The Buddha's advice on how to deal with this, this tendency towards being too relaxed or too strict 
too loose or too tight, it's the middle way. You have different descriptions of the middle way. Sometimes he said it's like you're swimming across the ocean, the ocean of samsara, the ocean of sensuality in the world. And the correct practice is to just keep going. It says if you stop, will you sink? Basically, if you stop practicing, stop developing the path, sila samadhi panya, where your mind starts to sink. So it's like when we become too relaxed, too loose, we just give up basically and seek distraction, seek to go back into more worldly things. Then we're like, we start to sink down and literally the mind starts to sink down into craving again. So we find suffering coming up very quickly, not getting what we want, not being able to hold on to what we have got that we want, not getting our aspirations and wishes fulfilled and so on. <coughs> Craving takes over. The other extreme, he said, is like being too tense and actually the struggle of being tense, trying to control and suppress craving in a negative way is, said he compared it's like getting caught into the strong currents of the ocean, the whirlpools and the strong undercurrents and being swept away. Which is also not going to take us to the other side. It also takes us to uh, maybe to destruction or death. So the middle way is learning how to keep swimming at the maybe a steady pace, a right the right pace, not to stop and sink but not to struggle so hard that one gets caught into a whirlpool of self and suffering and then carried away that way. We have to keep practicing in a steady way. And that's obviously a skill that maybe takes years to learn, not something one can necessarily learn overnight. What is the right level of practice, the right amount of effort, and so on. Also just distinguishing how to practice with a wholesome motivation and not let one's motivation become caught into craving either. The very motivation to practice. The difference between, say, uh, just desire for results, desire for peace, desire for success in different ways and then the wholesome desire of seeing suffering and looking for the way out of suffering through the practice. Slightly different things and the craving can come into our motivation for practice at any time. We see if we look closely just meditating we might sit down to meditate and wish 
to be peaceful. So if the mind is not yet peaceful, the stronger that wishing to be peaceful, the more suffering we have. Unhappy with our experience during the meditation perhaps. Maybe blaming a self, blaming the meditation object, blaming our own effort, blaming the place or the people or the climate or something. Simply because we're grasping at a desire for results or for gaining something. Whereas the wholesome motivation, the wholesome desire, the kusala chanda, that the Buddha talked about, always brings us back to look at what, what more we need to do in the practice. So if the meditation we're not yet peaceful, we go back to look at the basics, look at our effort, look at the level of mindfulness look at our attitude and the way we're thinking and looking at the very practice that we're doing and see where we might need to improve. Maybe have to adjust something. If we just keep thinking of results, I want to be peaceful and I'm not peaceful, then we very quickly become discouraged and disappointed. Maybe give up altogether. keep having to look and see where craving sneaks into our mind state as we're practicing. Now craving over time becomes upadana. It solidifies to form our views and the way of looking at things so that it becomes very habitual, very become very stuck or become very fixed in our views and ways of looking at things. So Ajahn Chah said, you know, the way craving becomes attachment, generally the things that agree with you, meaning agree with your craving, you see as good and right and what is correct for you. The things that don't agree with you stir up vipawadanha, the craving to get rid of. And those things we see as wrong, bad for us, not good for us. So over time that becomes our upadana, our attachment. And this is right for me, that is wrong for me. And this I like, that I don't like. It's not just a mood that comes up, but it's deeply ingrained in our mind. So craving becomes attachment. Clinging, clinging to views about the world, about our practice, about ourselves, about everything, based on what we like and what we don't like. This is right for me, this is wrong for me, this is good, this is bad. And we'll see how this comes up, stimulating you know, the way we think, our attitudes in a daily basis. Maybe it's to do with uh, what we like about the practice, we like certain things about the practice, certain conditions we find suitable, certain conditions we find not suitable, certain people we find we agree with, some we don't agree with, places, people, different conditions, 
And when craving comes into our mind, then we start judging, this is right for me, this is wrong for me, this is good, this is bad. It becomes fixed. So then that affects our perception, our outlook, the way we look at things, look at people, look at the place around us. And we form views and opinions and judgments which come up all the time. So you might be able to notice this in your own mind, in your own experience. So if somebody, if, if once we've got an idea of what we like, what we don't like, then if, say, if it's to do with other people, then if somebody fits the bill, say, and they talk about the things we like to hear about, they act in ways that we like, well, we'll be happy with that. Maybe we won't have a second thought about them. We're happy, we're content with that person. They talk the way like we like, they do the things we want them to do. But somebody else who doesn't fit the bill of our upadana, they talk about things we don't like, we're not interested in or don't like. They act in ways we don't like, we're not interested in. Then we get another reaction with them and maybe we are always finding fault with them or finding ourselves caught into aversion to them because they don't fit our upadana. And you can see that in different ways, the way we look, how our eyes look at people, look at the world around us, forming reactions or giving rise to reactions for liking and disliking based on our upadana. Our ears, what we hear, fits, doesn't fit with our upadana, doesn't, we like, we don't like. You know, if it's somebody we like, we can talk to them for hours and hours and hours and feel fine. Not much problem. If it's someone we don't like, and they talk just a few words already, we're unhappy. If we step back though, with this practice mindfulness and wisdom just as the Buddha encouraged us to develop we're looking more closely in a detached unbiased way at our own craving and attachment we might start to notice how it's working how it's affecting us how it comes up in the mind as different judgments and value judgments and what we give worth to or value to as this being is, this is good and this is not good, this is right, this is wrong, I like this, I don't like that. But as we start to investigate more closely we see the suffering that comes from this whole process of craving, giving rise to upadana. If it's unaddressed, it becomes bawa, it becomes a, you know, the realm of the mind, the way the mind is, it's just stuck in that way. And of course that will lead to future birth based on that clinging in the mind, what we like, what we don't like, and the reactions that come from it. But in the present moment we can see, you know, it's just the cause of our suffering, the mind is Happy one moment, unhappy the next. Peaceful one moment, not peaceful the next. Because of craving, conditioning, upadana, being unaddressed, unobserved, unrecognized.
As soon as you establish mindfulness, you start to step back in a more detached way and start to see what's happening. Of course, the stronger the mindfulness and the better we do this, the more of a sense of peace and equanimity arising in the mind, stepping back, just looking on at the way things are rather than grasping and following the craving. Mindfulness is patchy, well then we'll do it sometimes and then other times we fall back into our craving and so we experience suffering, different emotional states, happiness, sadness, pleasure, pain and so on. If you're practicing in this way in a monastery when it's peaceful like this, you actually have the opportunity to really see craving and attachment arising every day, working with it, observing, getting to learn about yourself better. You can come to appreciate it's maybe the most ideal situation in the world that the world can present for us to do it. Of course, it's not always easy takes effort to keep bringing up mindfulness and to contemplate our own experience. Sometimes the power of our craving is so strong that we can't contemplate it, it takes over. So it's like we lose our strength, we start to sink down into the, the sensuality of the world, likes and dislikes again. Or maybe we react a very common thing was that we have a period of indulgence and then we react with aversion to the indulgence so we go tense again and try to be very strict and control things but we can't sustain that either so what do we do we have to keep finding right effort in the middle just keep going back to the basics of bringing up mindfulness contemplating our experience and as we become more skilled, well, all these path factors, the Eightfold Path, become more steady, more present in our minds. And we become more used to observing craving attachment and letting go of it, rather than falling prey to it or getting upset with it and becoming tense with it. We just observe it more and more. We just observe it and let go of it and start winding back the whole process. Of course, we do have to use wisdom in the practice, especially in the beginning. We have to develop a lot of wisdom to protect ourselves from these extremes, going into craving, coming out of it. So we use the sealer to help with that. And learning to restrain our speech, our actions, follow the Vinaya, learning to use the requisites wisely, train ourselves, and to develop all the wholesome states of mind that support the mind just calming down enough to be aware, to be awake to the truth, to the truth of craving and attachment and how it affects it. All the monastic practices are supporting this. You're just developing the Brahmaviharas in daily life, developing kindness, compassion for one's fellow monastics, 
for the laity who support us, for the world in general. You know, that's a very nourishing, has a nourishing effect on the mind, steadies the mind, calms the mind, puts it in a suitable space to develop more mindfulness and from that samadhi so that we can really hold the mind, hold our awareness to see craving arising, passing away. And samadhi, in its definition, it's the continuous presence of wholesome dhammas. So, you know, developing Brahma-Vihara dhammas, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, compassion for those who are suffering, uh, sympathetic joy for those who are doing well, equanimity towards things that we can't do much about, and so on. And these qualities really support the arising of wholesome mind states that form into samadhi and support the wisdom, developing deeper insight into craving, how it arises, how it passes away, how we abandon it. On a night like this, also just developing gratitude, recognition that we couldn't be here without the Buddha, couldn't be in the robes without the Buddha, without Ajahn Chah and so on. You know, however special we may feel, however self-important we may feel sometimes, the truth of it is that we couldn't be here without our parents, without the Buddha, without Ajahn Chah, without the Sangha as a whole. Be impossible. So it's only correct to recognize or awaken to that truth and bring up a sense of gratitude and appreciation for that fact. And what's the result on the mind? Well, actually dispel some of that very craving and attachment that we're working with. Some of the sense of self, some of the sense of self-importance that we tend to get caught up with as human beings. And when craving does take over the mind, then we tend to look at other people in a biased way, doesn't it? If you have problems with other people, say in the monastery or just in general, and look at what would be causing you to have a problem with other people. It must be something colouring the way your mind looks and sees that person or those people. And the Buddha said, you know, when craving is absent from the mind, when you've abandoned it or you've been mindful of it, let it go, you can see other people as human beings, similar to you, subject to birth, old age, sickness and death, wishing for peace, happiness, just like you. When craving takes over the mind, then we see other people as maybe competitors, obstacles to our happiness, competitors, now, in a worldly sense, you know, we're competing for the resources of the world, compete for money, for jobs, compete for many, many things, for property and land, compete over political ideals and theories, 
ways we should run the world and so on. Your craving makes us see other people more as competition and then leading on from that we become insecure, so we get fear, so we get feeling of suspicion of other people, worried about what they might do to us. And that's what craving does to the mind. It actually changes the mind. It makes it more biased in the way it looks at the world and other people. When you remove craving, then other people are just what they are. They're just people, subject to old age, sickness and death, worthy of compassion just like ourselves. The sense of self and other people starts to fade away. And just say everybody is in the same boat, all stuck in samsara, no different. But craving changes that. This is why we have, say, conflict between groups of human beings or individual human beings. The craving leads on to changing our perception of other people. See them as a problem, see them as a threat, see them as a competition. This is why when you remove craving from the human mind, it becomes peaceful within itself and with other people. There's no problem, there's nothing in the mind that can find a problem with another person. The Buddha didn't have problems with other people. He said, when craving is removed, the mind reaches what we call the deathless, meaning there's no more arising and passing away of sankharas, the things that make us create karma, good and bad. When craving is removed, attachments removed, bower and jati removed, the mind reaches the deathless, no more birth and death. So the one who's focused on the deathless doesn't argue or quarrel with anybody because they can see everybody is just the same. There's nothing to quarrel about. And if you know the nature of this world is anicca, dukkha, anatta, there's nothing to quarrel about. There's no possessions or wealth to quarrel about or fight about because it's all impermanent anyway. There's no bodies or beings or self to quarrel about. Myself, yourself, because there is no self. This body that we call myself is impermanent. It's destined to die. Can't change that fact. Anyone else in the world is destined to die can't change that fact. Our thoughts, our views, our opinions, which we might feel are very important, other people's opinions are not very important, are not as important as mine, but they're all impermanent, they arise, pass away. The only thing that doesn't arise, pass away is the deathless, Nibbana. So one who's focused on that and doesn't quarrel with anyone doesn't have a problem with anyone. If we're striving, it is correct, you know, we are striving for Nibbana because we haven't reached it yet. We do have to strive, we have to follow the path of practice, we have to swim across the ocean. This is a subtle point because sometimes that striving 
gets us confused so we think well we're striving and then maybe we are striving against other people or other conditions that get in our way so we have to keep looking to see where our striving becomes craving if you think about it say to compete with somebody to reach Nibbana is ridiculous or to compete with somebody and to develop the Eightfold Path is ridiculous it's a contradiction it's, it's misunderstanding of truth the very sense of competition should be fading if we're developing the path even though we have to strive and there, there is a self you could say who is following this path When we reach the other side, though, when we reach Nibbāna, then you, you leave the path behind. You leave the sense of self behind. Even the aspiration for Nibbāna you leave behind when you reach it. That's the nature of Nibbāna. It's just what it, what it is. It exists. Just the state. The deathless state where the mind sees truth. But to get there, there's still a person practicing to even as we practice for Nibbāna, we can still get misguided and start competing with others or struggling with others on that path. So we really have to go back and look at our motivation and see where craving is coming in and deluding us. Or say, arguing about the way to Nibbāna, again, it seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? It's going in the wrong direction. If it's worldly things, we can argue, argue all day about the way to divide the wealth of the world and how to run the world and run society. And people will, and they'll argue right to the end of their lives and then they have to come back again if they've got the merit. They'll be, be reborn as a human if they haven't, maybe not a human. But the Dhamma is not something to argue about in that way it's something to practice to see to investigate to look closely at and it brings us to Nibbāna the path of practice doesn't even cause Nibbāna it's not like one thing leads to another Nibbāna is just there already it is what it is it's just we don't see it we don't experience it yet so the path brings us to Nibbāna, but it doesn't actually create Nibbāna or cause Nibbāna. But it's something that takes us to it. So it's like crossing the ocean, you reach the island of Nibbāna. The island was already there. Crossing the ocean wasn't the cause for the island to arise. It was simply the, the method you get to the island by swimming or going on your raft. When you get to the other side, though, you, you drop the raft, you leave it. You leave that sense of self, even that motivation to practice, to examine craving, upadana. You drop that behind. And so even the most subtle insight, which still might be joined with a sense of self, one lets that go. There's a tricky part of the practice, just set us, getting it clear in your mind, this separation between 
the conventional reality and the ultimate reality. Ajahn Mahabur always had that teaching when you're practicing sila and there is a self, there's one who keeps sila and you either keep sila or you don't. You keep a precept, you follow it or you don't and there's a self who's doing that. They, they have the intention to refrain from say unwholesome acts of body and speech or they lose that intention and they, they don't refrain from actions of unwholesome actions of body and speech for useful, skillful purposes we say there is a self who keeps precepts or doesn't and even on the level of samadhi one who meditates still a sense of self is one who is meditating who is developing mindfulness on an object who is abandoning the hindrances who is directing the mind to contemplate anicca dukkha anatta in their experience even on that level, there's a sense of self. But on the level of wisdom, insight, just seeing the nature of body and mind as an dukkha anatta, that's when the sense of self dissipates, fades away from your experience. So if you keep coming to that point where you're contemplating things as an dukkha anatta, then that sense of self should be fading. So that's where there's no need to quarrel or argue or get caught into views and opinions or suffer with the world. One just sees things as they are. And this is why on the level of sila and samadhi we do have a little bit of a struggle with I'm keeping my precepts, maybe other people are not keeping their precepts, or I keep my precepts better than others or worse than others. There's always that opportunity for conceit or a sense of self to slip in on the level of precepts. Or even on the level of samadhi and meditation, still a sense of self can slip in. I am one meditating, I want to meditate. These things are obstacles to my meditation, these things are support to my meditation. My meditation goes well, my meditation goes badly. I'm peaceful, I'm not peaceful. On that level, we still have a sense of self. But on the highest level, we're breaking through that. So obviously, even on the level of sila and samadhi, when panya is functioning well, we won't have a strong sense of self, or maybe no sense of self. Keeping the precepts is just the right thing to do. The Dhamma just is directing the mind, uh, we keep the precepts because it's peaceful, harmonious and it's conducive to meditation and insight. So there's no sense of I am keeping precepts and comparing with others and so on. It's just the mind doing the right thing in line with Dhamma and Vinaya. And similarly with meditation and developing mindfulness and samadhi, the mind is just doing it because it's the right thing to do to develop, to develop the path without a sense of I am meditating I'm meditating well, badly they are meditating well, badly and so on that fades away and it's just using the meditation as a skillful means to develop insight and then insight itself well it's not I am insightful I am not insightful I am wise, I'm not wise you know, the mind is going, breaking through that sense of self 
self-view and just seeing things as they are. Body and mind are just phenomena, rising, passing away. Mm-hmm. Rupa Dhamma, Nama Dhamma. So the Buddha gave us this path of practice which we can reflect tonight how he practiced and how he explained it to us, left it to us through the teachings and then all the sawakas who've practiced since the time of the Buddha who've also, out of compassion, explained this path of practice, given it to us to follow. It's a time for us to reflect on our own efforts what we need to do to balance our efforts or improve our efforts, deepen our understanding of the Dhamma. And this is our good opportunity to do that. We have a peaceful place, we have time, we have energy and support. So I encourage you all to take that chance, take that opportunity for yourselves. I'll leave these words with you for your reflection. (laughs) 